Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and my next guest is the international best-selling author of 10 action thriller novels. He wrote and self-published his first novel contest when he was just 19 and has now sold more than 3.5 million copies. He's also my son's absolutely favorite author. Welcome, Matthew Riley. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Now, look, before we begin chatting, um, just to give the readers, if there are one or two out there who still haven't read your books, um, a sense of your style, can I ask you please to read to us a little bit from The Five Greatest Warriors? Oh, I'm afraid I don't have a copy of The Five Greatest Warriors with me. I'm currently in a hotel room in faraway Hobart. Uh, To give you a sense of it, the books are designed to be big and fast, to, to take you away from the real world and take you away at bullet pace. I take a year to write these books. And people read them in a day or two. Yeah. My son actually read it in an hour or two. In an hour or two. Yeah, that's they're, right. Maybe three. I had to, to stop them to eat. It's, uh, it's one of those things where I, I do get mums having a non-reading son. Uh, and they, they give one of my books to their son. Often it's, it's Ice Station or Hell Island. And, and then they can't get him to come to dinner. So it's a good problem to have. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think it's every author's dream. <laughs> it, it, it is. It really is. You write these books to be read. Um, I never expected them to be so embraced by teenage readers. I, I wrote the books for mature adult readers, but I'm thrilled with this un- unintended consequence that teenage non-readers have grasped, grabbed onto them. And, and teenage readers too, because yeah. um, you know my son's a big reader, but he, you know, he absolutely loves your work, which is great. Yeah. He was very pleased with the Doctor Who connection as well. With the Doctor Who connection? Well, I think you had a reference in The Five Greatest Warriors, which uh, thrilled him. And I think in the back you, you mentioned that you're a fan. Uh, it's funny. Um, I'm not really a huge Doctor Who watcher, so if there was a Doctor Who reference, it was inadvertent. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I'll, I'll let him know. So tell me a little bit about the Warrior series. Where did it originate? Well, I began the series with the hero of Five Gross Warriors is Jack West Jr., who first appeared in Seven Ancient Wonders and then the Six Sacred Stones. And what I wanted to do with Jack was to reinvent Indiana Jones for, for the 21st century audience, to, to have a story where our hero goes to these strange ancient places with booby traps uh, in the search of these powerful ancient relics. And with Jack West, uh, part of his quest involves finding these lost locations of a, of a past civilization you know, around the world. And I have linked a lot of the famous sites around the world uh, to this ancient civilization, Stonehenge, the Great Pyramid, Easter Island, and I'll be doing some more in future books. And so really, Jack West is a, is a modern-day adventurer, and it pleases me immensely that he's also Australian. And do you think that's also part of the, the appeal to a reader, that they're, you know, they're getting a lot of fun adventure stuff, but they're also kind of learning a bit about history, they're learning about geography? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I learned that from reading the books of Michael Crichton when I was about 18 or 19, uh, especially Jurassic Park. I think the whole world really learned about DNA from Jurassic Park, uh, both the book and then the film. And Michael Crichton's books were a huge inspiration for me because whether it was Congo, learning about the African jungles, the Great Train Robbery, learning about Victorian England, I took that into my books. And when you read, say, Ice Station, you learn about Antarctica. When you read Temple, you learn about the Incas in Peru, and very much so with, with Jack West. Uh, you'll learn about the strange and wonderful ancient places around our world. And mind you, I happily say that about 85% of the history in my books is real. But there is that 15% around the edges, which I kind of use to gild the lily a bit. Now, I, I imagine that uh, even in a, a book of pure history, with, without a fictional component, that there's some, mm-hmm. some lily gilding, if you like. Well, this is, this is something I find more and more, especially in recent history books. Uh, I'm reading a book about the fall of the Roman Empire, and the author is very candid when he says, listen, we can't be too definite about things that happened 2,000 years ago. The sources are often very skinny, we usually use, for say the Romans, we use an inscription or a pillar that somebody carved. And so where history gets blurry, and often it's very, very blurry, that's where I as a fiction author 
leap straight in because when you put fiction on the back cover of that book, you can fill in those gaps as you like. And I, I am very pleased, or I'm very clear when I say my books are first and foremost adventure stories and they use history as a backdrop. And I suppose Jack, too. Jack West is a modern man, isn't he? So he's quite different from anybody who might be living in the Jack, historical times you're researching. Very much so. In fact, Jack is a very modern man. He's entire, he's half of his left arm is uh, made of metal. Uh, he's, got, he's got a very modern body as well. But what, what I like about Jack, and certainly it's, um, it's a big difference between the Jack West Jr. books and, say, the Scarecrow books are my earlier fiction. Jack West is a guy who is former SAS, so he's a gung-ho action man. But he's also university educated. And I like the fact that he's not only a guy who can run and jump from moving planes and do amazing feats of daring do, but he's also smart. And when I think of the younger readers reading my books, I like to think they will go, hey, you know, I can't just be an action man or a sportsman. I need to have some smarts as well. And so Jack, to me, is that wonderful hero who's both action-packed and also a smart guy. He's a good guy too, isn't he? He is. He is. And it's a theme that certainly runs through Seven Wonders, Six Stars and Five Warriors. The theme of being a good guy, being loyal, standing by your friends, even when you're facing perhaps certain death. Uh, All the team uh, that he deals with, this small international team, uh, including the little girl, Lily, uh, they are good people. And I like to think that comes from my sort of overdeveloped sense of justice. But I do prize loyalty, and it's one of the big themes in The Five Greatest Warriors. Do you ever imagine um, Jack West Jr. doubting himself? Or, or senior, for, for that matter, doing something really good? Oh, you know, very much so. And it's funny, I'm actually writing at the moment uh, the screenplay for Scarecrow, uh, which is not one of the Jack West books, but one of the things I'm very um, deliberately putting into that screenplay is doubt, that I think the hero should doubt himself. And with The Five Greatest Warriors, we certainly find Jack finding out that maybe some of his team members in the past haven't been loyal. And the question of how he responds to that um, is up in the air at certain points in the books. In, in the book. And it's something that I learned from my parents. They, they gave me this, this little quote once in my life. They said, a friend's loyalty lasts longer than their memory. And that became one of the themes of The Five Greatest Warriors, that if you are friends with somebody and you do have a differing of opinion or maybe somebody does the wrong thing by you, you remember the length of the friendship more than the, the, the act which might have you know, gone against your wishes. Do, do you imagine him ever you know, thinking, maybe I'm not doing the right thing by Lily or, you know, God, I've killed a lot of people? <laughs> um, he, he, he actually does talk to Lily at one point in Fight Warriors about killing people because Lily says, you know, why didn't you kill this bad guy when you had the chance? And he says, it's not my first instinct. And that is the difference between the good guy and the bad guy. And so, yes, I, I think Jack has great difficulty with killing people. And he says to Lily, you don't ever want to do it. And the people that he does, unfortunately, knock off uh, are overwhelmingly really, really bad guys. So uh, it is one thing that I think permeates my books. Uh, the notion of comeuppance, that readers, are, I do firmly believe, they love to see these horrible villains get their just desserts. But yes, it's very important that Jack as the hero doesn't just become Schwarzenegger or Stallone from the 1980s and kill everybody in the room and then say a pithy one-liner. He has to think about the consequences. Mm. Now tell me a little bit about the whole process. Do you actually plot out your series? Do you have a you know sort of a sense of where, you know, it's going to end by the time you get to, um, you know, book, book nine or whatever and, you know, sort of decide that, that each book will be about this or that thing or is it, is it just kind of a natural genesis from one to the next? No, no, I, I do have a, a larger overall picture, but it's, it's very, very general. Um, in all honesty, when I sat down to write Seven Ancient Wonders, uh, I really just saw it as a one-off book. And if you look at them closely, Seven Wonders 
can be read as a standalone novel, but I enjoyed Seven Wonders so much. I thought, well, what else can I do? And the story of The Six Sacred Stones and The Five Greatest Warriors is really one story told over two books. And so I commenced this countdown of 765. Now I'm starting to think of books 4, 3, 2, and 1. And I don't think they will be one huge overarching story. I think like Six Stones and Five Warriors, 4 and 3 might go together, and then 2 and 1 might go together. Uh, I don't want to do a full Harry Potter thing where all seven books are one massive story. Uh, I think I'd rather keep it a little bit compartmentalized. And I suppose it makes it easier for the reader who comes to your work late. It does. It does. And even with The Five Greatest Warriors, I felt I should put a little synopsis at the start of the book just to bring new readers completely up to speed and to give those existing readers of mine uh, a quick, you know, quick, you know, four-page summary of Seven Wonders and Six Stones so they can get into Five Warriors, you know, at, you know, hit the ground running when they start reading the book. And I, I had been inspired by the little synopses at the start of the Tolkien books, The Two Towers and Return of the King. I figured if it was good enough for J.R.R. Tolkien, it was good enough for Matthew Riley. Fair point. Um, now tell me a little bit about how you choose which historical place or which historical time you're going to be focusing on. And do you build on the history from, from one book to the next? Very much so. Uh, the way I choose the places is, is actually very, very simple. And <laughs> it's, it's the way I've written all of my life. I choose what interests me. Uh, I think if, if I am interested in the subject matter, then when readers pick up the book, they will be interested. I do believe that my enthusiasm when I am typing these words at my computer comes out in the reader's enthusiasm when they're reading the book. And when I'm writing about these places, the very first one was the Great Pyramid for Seven Ancient Wonders. I travelled to Egypt on my honeymoon uh, way back in 2004, and I just loved Egypt. And there is so much there that I enjoyed writing about it. Now, from the Great Pyramid, I thought of the other places of the world that interest me, and there's Stonehenge, uh, Easter Island. I'm currently looking into Angkor Wat. Uh, and fortunately for me, there are all these strange and wonderful ruins around our planet, and I've used that to create this notion of maybe there was this ancient civilization which had this sort of advanced technology. And so I, I will first and foremost just look in my history books, find a place that interests me, go and do the research, perhaps visit the place, and then sit down at my keyboard and write, write, write. Mm. Uh, the Egyptians are particularly interesting in the Five Greatest Warriors um, because clearly they're a more advanced race than us. Yes, yes. I, well, one of the things about the Great Pyramid that we, we tend to forget is that the Great Pyramid was built nearly 5,000 years ago. And if you ever go to Egypt, you must go inside the Great Pyramid because on the inside it is absolutely phenomenal and you can't imagine the sheer weight of stone above your head. Yet inside that structure are the most ornate cathedral-type rooms and the technology that built that pyramid, we, we obviously see the exterior and it's very crumbly and people have taken off the, the limestone casing, but we tend to forget just how brilliant whoever built that building was. And for 5,000 years, for nearly 5,000 years, it was the tallest building in the world. It was only the Eiffel Tower at the end of the 19th century that finally, we finally had a building that was taller than the Great Pyramid. And if you travel around Egypt and you see places like Abu Simbel and some of the island temples down at Aswan, you'll just marvel at this civilization and think it was literally four to 5,000 years ahead of its time. And you, you can't go to Egypt without just sort of walking around with your mouth hanging open in wonder. And hopefully I've, I've transferred that to the novels. Yes, and I suppose it's a good excuse as well to, you know, once you run out of adjectives to begin thinking, okay, what can I do with all this wonder? <laughs> well, it, it just blows you away. It really does just blow you away. And fortunately for me, Egypt, and this is why Egypt is my favorite place in the world to visit, uh, there is so much there. There's not just the pyramids. There are other sites all down the Nile and maybe a dozen of them and they all just blow you away. Mm. Now tell me about your distinctive filmic style. I mean, I, I suppose to a certain extent mm. you mentioned that you're your own target audience. So 
that's a style obviously that appeals to you. But where mm. does it really, where does it, you know, where does it derive from? Because it's almost your differentiation, isn't it? It is, it is, and I do believe it's something that I that I realised early on that most readers out there, and especially readers of of techno thrillers or action adventure novels, they watch a lot of movies. And the realisation that I had is that I believe people think in a movie language. They think in terms of close-ups, long shots, dissolves, and even after the Matrix movies, people can think in bullet time. And what I did is I transferred that into my, my writing style so that when you read a scene from one of my books, for example, the hovercraft chase in Ice Station, you know, as we see three tiny figures running across the roof of one of the speeding hovercraft, you're, you're going into a long shot. You're remembering the car chase movies that you've seen in the past. But then the character pulls out his gun and squeezes his finger on the trigger, and suddenly you're zooming into a close-up of a finger pulling the trigger on a gun. So when people say that my books are very visual and very filmic, it's a very deliberate stylistic device that I'm using. Some reviewers say that the books read like screenplays, and I think that's a little unfair. I think it shows that they actually haven't read a screenplay. A screenplay is a very pared-down piece of prose, whereas my novels are written to be read by an audience that thinks in that filmic language. And yes, I'm, I'm very pleased that that has become sort of the Matthew Riley style. And do you think it will translate into a screenplay? I mean, you're doing that now, aren't you? Yes. Um, I've sold movie rights in the past. I sold Hover Car Racer to Walt Disney Pictures, and I've just recently sold Scarecrow, and, and I've been engaged to write the screenplay for that. Um, I, I think it will translate to film. The problem is that I write these books to be big, and when I do the action scenes, I'm not thinking about a budget. I'm making them as big and as explosive as possible, which means when Hollywood comes calling, they're going to need $100 million minimum to make these books into films. And each studio only makes one or two $100 million blockbusters each year. So if it does happen, and I'm doing my best, um, it won't be a matter of months. It'll be a matter of years. Sure. Now, um, I'm quite happy for my son, who's 12, to read your books. Um, yes. There's a lot of violence, <laughs> exploding heads and so forth, and a lot of cursing. He hears it at school. Yes. So do you ever worry, though, that, um, I mean, I know you write for adults, but do you ever worry that, you know, because you've got such a huge younger audience, that there are issues with that, or do you feel that, that there are aspects of your books that make it okay for younger readers to read them in spite of the violence and the cursing and so forth? Yes, I, I think, again, even my younger readers do watch a lot of movies. And even a movie like, say, Die Hard, which has lots of guns and, and swearing and explosions, has an element of sort of cartoonishness to it. And so I think young people have seen a lot of movies and will picture the violence in my books in a very movie way. That said, um, what you say is absolutely true. And it's actually the reason I wrote Hover Car Racer. The, the one book of mine, which is for younger readers. And I wrote Hover Car Racer because I had a nine-year-old boy come to a signing for Scarecrow. And I felt that Scarecrow in particular, uh, it's, it's easily the most violent of all of the books and does have its very liberal amount of inventive swearing. I'm very inventive with my swearing. But I thought Scarecrow was a bit too much for a nine-year-old. And so I said, I'm going to write a novel for younger readers, which will have all the pace and the action of a Matthew Riley book, but it won't have the violence or the swearing. And so that's where Hover Car Racer does fill that gap. The interesting thing that comes out of that is the relative absence of sex in the books, because I do get a lot of parents saying, it's okay to have the swearing and the violence, um, and I really just don't want to have the sex in the books. So that's another issue. As far as I'm concerned, it's not that I'm trying to take sex out of the books or put it into the books. It's merely that the action is taking place at such a rapid speed and our heroes, Jack West and Shane Scarfield, have so many problems to solve, there's no time for sex. That's right. Um, also, I think, you know, they're not really dark. I mean, despite the fact that good and evil seem to be quite absolute. For example, mm -hmm. I found them less, you know, certainly the five greatest warriors, less disturbing, for example, than the last Harry Potter. Yes, um, Again, it's something which I'm not consciously doing. It's just the kind of story that I like to read. I'm not really a fan of dark books. 
I do love the battle between good and evil. Um, but yes, in the end, my books are designed to be more escapist than they are designed to be to be dark. And of course, in any kind of thriller, the villains have to be you know, looking like they're going to win at some point. And on some occasions, the villains do win. But yeah, you have to be you have to be very careful treading the line of keeping the the reader thrilled and going into darkness, which I find is just not as much fun to read. Mm. Now I'd love to just talk a bit about your own self-publishing story because it's legendary. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, you, uh, you know, you're a long way from that now, and certainly, um, yeah. you know, those days are, are history for you. But um, do you feel that? You know, authors today could get more involved in the promotion of their books and in the you know development of them as a product. You know, this this is a very sort of vexing issue, um, and it's a vexing issue because many authors I find are very introverted people. You spend a lot of time by yourself writing a book, so maybe just the sheer fact of being an author means that you are a little solitary. I'm a little different. Uh, I did a lot of public speaking in high school and I actually did a little bit of theatre and stuff like that. So I'm okay going on television or going on radio. But for many authors, it's quite scary and quite beyond their comfort zone. So to ask an author to get out there and promote in the same way that a movie star, who is usually very extroverted and very comfortable with the attention, to me is a very difficult thing. And I think you have to take it on an author-by-author case-by-case basis. Uh, As far as self-publishing is concerned, uh, I only did it to get noticed. And what people who consider self-publishing have to remember is that you have to ask yourself, why are you doing it? You're not going to make your fortune self-publishing. What I wanted was the distribution power of a major publishing house and getting their attention. Did you also feel, though, that because I guess your work was a little bit different to much of what was being published at the time, that you really needed to assist in the mind shift. Very much so. Uh, and when I self-published Contest, Australia had no history of you know, publishing this sort of fast-paced action thriller. All of my influences were American, Michael Crichton, Tom Clancy, John Grisham. And even when Macmillan picked up Ice Station, and to their eternal credit, um, Kate Patterson at Macmillan got, she picked me up because she said, I want a new kind of author. I'm not quite sure what you're writing, but it's new and it's different. And the funny thing was that my line editor at Macmillan uh, just did not know the conventions of thrillers. And here I was pushing the boundaries of thriller conventions. And so I was educating them. Uh, Wonderfully now, there's a very strong thriller publishing industry in Australia, and I like to think I was sort of at the front edge of that. Do you think you'll ever reach the limit on adventure? I mean, is is there a point beyond which your characters just can't go and you'll have to change tactics? Uh, Very much so. Uh, Even even with The Five Greatest Warriors, I'm thinking now, how am I going to top myself next time? Uh, I, I have one golden rule when I'm writing each book, and each book has to be better than the one before. That's, that's the sole standard that I set myself. And with The Five Greatest Warriors, I've taken the scale of the book to a whole new level. And what do you do when you reach that point where the fate of the world is at stake, the world is literally shaking, you can't save the world with every book? And I think maybe what you do is you go back to something smaller and something more like Ice Station, which is set in a confined location at a remote place. So I like to think that what I do is I zig when everybody else zags. And so I have to make sure that next time I do it better, but in a different way. Um, And who knows, maybe I'm 35 now. Maybe I'll write something just a little bit different. Character-driven, introspective work. (laughs) Well, it'll probably be plot-driven. I still like a good story. But who knows, maybe something more historical, something more like perhaps The Name of the Rose, uh, to go back to a different time period. Uh, as I'm often asked, you know, would I ever write something more introspective, more sort of a, about the human condition? And I've been fortunate that I was young when I started. And I think when you're 22, 
you really don't know that much about the human condition. But now that I'm a little older, maybe I will write something, but I think it'll always be plot-driven. I think I'm hardwired that way. Yes, and I suppose your, your audience, too, is expecting a certain something from you. Well, that, that's, well that's, a, that's a whole other issue of finding your name becoming a brand, that when you see Matthew Riley on the cover of a book, there is a certain expectation of a certain kind of book. So if I did do a different kind of book, I think I would have to alter my name in some way, maybe call myself Matthew John Riley using my middle name, uh, just as Ian Banks uses Ian M. Banks when he writes his science fiction. Hmm. Umberto Riley. <laughs> Umberto Riley, yes. That's right. Now tell me, you know, if you've got something on the cards, are you, are you working on the next book? Are you plotting it out? I had a bit of spare time this year, so I managed to have a, have a go at two secret projects, uh, one book for older readers and one new short book uh, of the, the same length as Hell Island, uh, which is for younger readers, again, something which could be a bit of a companion to Hover Car Racer. And then come 2010, uh, all of next year, uh, I'll be writing a new book, which at the moment should be a follow-up to Five Warriors, and it will be before something, something. Do you feel any pressure? I mean, I, I know that people come up to you and say, you know, come on, I want that next book, especially when you leave them with such a cliffhanger as you did the, in, with the previous book. Yes. Um, you know, a I, literal I don't, cliffhanger. <laughs> the, the only pressure I feel, and especially with the cliffhanger at the end of Six Stones, I did feel that the next book, Five Warriors, had to deliver. Uh, if you're going to leave people with a cliffhanger, the next book really has to be a crackerjack book. And so... I did feel a little bit of pressure then, but beyond that, no, I've kept an open dialogue with my readers, you know, through my website, through these interviews that we always put at the end of the books uh, that say that I do write one book every two years. And my readers, because I'm very open in that dialogue, they go, okay, I do have to wait two years. And the reason for that is to do a book a year every year will eventually turn you into a sausage machine and the ideas have to suffer. And I think my readers, as I've said to them, my readers understand that if I have that little bit of time to recharge, re-energize, that every two years you'll get an excellent Matthew Riley book. And that's better than getting something average every single year. Sure. And I suppose you have to, you know, you've got research to do. You've got to travel to the places that you're you're writing about and so forth. That's exactly right. And you, you have to let your mind rest and absorb as well so you you do need that time that said when you are starting out as an author it is important to have a few books come out each year so that booksellers you know know your name remember who you are and you establish a toehold and the one book I had to write within a year was Temple and so when I started out we went I Station Temple then they re-released Contest so I had three books come out in three years Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your time, Matthew. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for having me. And don't forget to join us again next time on the Compulsive Reader Talks. Okay, bye-bye. That was great. Thank you. Bye. Bye.